Pussy Power Podcast. Welcome. Welcome to the Pussy Power Podcast. Meow. That's Kate Cortleo. That's Laura Lee Tyson. And we're here. We're back. We're fighting. It's a good fight. Always. Well, at least we try. After last week where we were networking and hopefully meeting a lot of people who will be enthusiastic about our podcast and yeah, possible shout out to our new friends at the New York Television Festival. Talk show. That was so fun. It was super fun. And it was really exciting to see how many new projects are being helmed, produced, written, and directed by women. Just like really inspiring to see all these female content creators and like the dudes too. Like all of it was just a really inspiring yeah. week. There was a, a women in comedy, or not, just a comedy panel, and all of the people were women. Like the one that I missed. I was like, yes! <laughs> it was amazing. And also, Robin Thede was there. Oh! Um, queen. With, with her, like, showrunner, producer, and head writer, and they were all female and diverse, and I it was that lovely. that time that we were in her studio audience, and it was amazing. Yeah, and we knew nothing about it. And I was like, oh, shit. This is a good show. We need to know about this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. I feel like renewed, but also exhausted. Yeah, same. <laughs> I still have to like follow up with all the so, people that I yes, met. Yes, we yeah, we definitely need to do that. But we were hopefully meeting lots of fun guests. Our guest today, we met yes, there. Yes, we met at the it was festival. So exciting! Wait, this is a crazy. Maybe I should wait until she arrives. Okay. Well, let's talk about pop culture. Well, I also like this is just on. Um, so our guest is Brooke Berman. Yes. Um, and I. She's a playwright, and I'm, like, a fan of hers, so I kind of fangirled a little bit when I met her, and I heard her name. And then I was thinking about, okay, the, the term? word fangirl, yeah. right? It's yeah. a really specific thing. Like, when you say you fangirled over someone, yeah, it has a connotation to what it means. It's, like, kind of silly and, like, really enthusiastic. Yeah. But there's not really an equivalent for using boys. a male Fanboy? <laughs> Fanboy? Yeah, that sounds like something totally Nerded different. out? Like, geeked out? Do guys say they fangirl? Yeah. They say that? I think so. Yeah, I mean, I feel like fangirl is a little... Pejorative is maybe too strong. But, but I see I see what you mean. There's a sense of, like, you made a fool of yourself a little bit. Like, you yeah. were silly. You mm-hmm. were overly silly. You're not going to take this person seriously. Yeah. So I was just thinking about that. And yeah. It over. No, it's a very interesting... I think it's important to take note when we use language that is inherently gendered exactly. that we don't think about. Yeah. I've been also realizing that I do that with like lame. The word lame mm-hmm. is like an able there's so many words. Also like crazy and insane. I mean given uh, our society's attitude towards mental illness. Mm-hmm. Due to some technical difficulties the middle part of the podcast is corrupted. Sorry folks we're not perfect but we're gonna skip right to the interview. So welcome, welcome, Brooke Berman. Thank you. Um, Brooke, Thank you. you're a playwright and filmmaker, and I'm. we just met at the <laughs> television festival. At the television festival. It was so exciting. But I already knew who you were well before that. That was so. really fun. That was crazy. Yeah. You do. I literally, like, you weren't there right when we met. I was talking to these two other women, to Yael and... John Terry. And John Terry. Yeah. I've read Yael's script. It's amazing. I can't wait to read it. I haven't read it yet. So I she was explained a, it to me. It's but. extraordinary. I was a finalist for the contest that she won. Okay. And I came to the reading, you know, with my snarky hat on because mm-hmm. I didn't win. I was the finalist. Right. And I was blown away. Like, blown She's amazing. Away. We should also have her on the podcast. Yeah. She's going to be back in New York soon. Good. Yeah, she is amazing. And her script is amazing. 
she writes for Claws, which is an amazing yeah. show, which Wait, a lot of people don't watch. I it, but is the woman from Scream Queens on it? I, the one who yes. plays Denise Hemphill? Yes, yes. She's the main woman, I think. I love her, you guys. I think she's an amazing actor. All anyway, of the, all of yeah, the actors are I, amazing. I haven't watched anyway, either. My friend good. Jason Antoon is on it, and my friend Carrie Preston is on it, and I, we just don't have Hulu. So. Mm. Yeah, I recently was watching it on Hulu. Yeah. It's great. I gotta watch it. But so... Oh, yeah, I didn't finish that. So, yeah, that's fantastic. So. And John Terry's fantastic. Also, she and I were just at the New York Stage and Film Screenwriters Lab together. Oh, nice. And she has this killer pilot. And she won this contest last year. Or not the contest, the whole thing, the TV festival. That's oh, amazing. wow. She won, like, best comedy script. That's amazing. She's amazing. She also has a master's in poetry, which I find sort of extraordinary for a TV writer. Like, yeah. Those are very she, different. Yeah, because she has a real understanding of language, mm. you know? So anyway, those were the two women you were talking about. Yeah, so anyway, I'm talking to these yeah. women, and Brooke comes over and says nice things about the panel, and I'm like, it's so nice to meet you. What's your name? And she's like, Brooke Berman. And I was like, Wait. <laughs> And so those two women, Yael and John Terry, were just watching, like, delighted, just observing our, our meeting. They were, and they commented on it later, because television <laughs> writers don't get that in yeah. quite the same way playwrights do, so um, they make a lot more money than we do, Yeah, but they don't, you know, have that personal connection that, you know, yeah. you're not like, oh my god, you wrote that episode of Mad Men, right, it changed right. my life, you know, right. I did that for audition monologues. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which, although with Mad Men, you might like there was that one Jason Grote episode, you know, where they it was like Ionesco, they all went into like a weird drug fugue. I didn't actually watch the show. Oh, well, there you go. Did I watch that one? I think I did watch that one. Yeah, it was an interesting. It was really interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so we're here to talk about you and your writing. Yeah. I'd love to know, have you always been a writer? Like, when did you decide this is what you wanted no, to do? I mean, I was on the same path as you guys. I was an actor. Um, I went to college. I went to, I always did theater. I was always an actor. We both went to Barnard. Oh, you mm-hmm. went to Barnard? I did. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. It's so funny. There have been a lot of Barnard women, like, coming up yeah. in my life in the last two weeks. Really? Yeah, divine choreography. Maybe. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't write plays at Barnard. I wanted to be an actor, and the acting program at that time was not great. It's still not great. <laughs> I think it's maybe better than it was. My I was in the same freshman acting class with the playwright Gina Gianfrido. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Barnard girl. And Gina and I both remember this teacher coming in and telling us that um, Western culture was over, so why bother? <laughs> and he was a recovering alcoholic who had uh, very hostile feelings towards women. Oh no. <laughs> the wrong place for him to Maybe you shouldn't be yeah, no, college. Maybe not so much. So I, um, I loved this professor, Bob O'Mealy, who taught um, American literature and African-American literature, and he was writing a biography of Billie Holiday, and he had this real understanding of the musicality of language. And my mm-hmm. mom had been a musician, so like I was all about the musicality of language. And I um, just took all of his classes. And then there was a, a professor, Vivian Nitre, who taught women in religion. I took all of her classes and then I dropped out to study with Ann Bogart. Whoa! Yes. Amazing! How was that? It was extraordinary and part of what led me to Ann was that earlier that maybe six months earlier the summer 
before my sophomore year of college, I was working for my acting teacher in Chicago, Joyce Piven, and she was doing a production of Irene Fornes' play, Mud. Mm -hmm. And I was house managing, so I got to see it every night, and it blew me away. Like, I just thought, oh my God, like, that's a play? Like, that's what a play can be? Mm -hmm. And Irene came to see the play one night and spoke afterwards, and it was really like bolts of electricity flew through the air and the angel bells rang, and I was like, oh my God, that. And I remember leaving, I was living with my best friends in the city that summer, and I remember, like, leaving the theater in Evanston getting into my car, getting onto Lakeshore Drive, and, like, there's this part, before you get on the freeway, there's this part of Sheridan Road where there are a lot of stoplights, mm -hmm. and then suddenly you're cruising on the freeway. And it every, I had this little notebook in my hand on, like, the, the horn of my car, and at every stoplight, I would stop and, like, write stuff down. <laughs> like, I was so on fire. Wow. And so I'd heard that Irene Fornes was going to be in Providence directing her new play, while Anne was, you know, like in conjunction with this Anne Bogart Trinity Rep thing. And so I went to Providence. I did this workshop with Anne that was the audition for the conservatory. And again, like the bolts of electricity flew through the air. And I was like, oh, I'm coming here. This is what I'm supposed to do next. Mm -hmm. And around that time, I had started performing a short story that I had written um, that I wrote through that Vivian Nitre Women in Religion class. And I was performing it in like coffee houses and yeah. bars. And do you remember, did you guys have Postscript when you were a student? Yeah. Yeah, I performed it at Postscript and I performed it at the, there was that literary frat. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't. There was a lit frat <laughs> and they had like coffee houses. That's I performed cool. Were they in there. EC? No, they were on 114th Street where all those frats were. Okay. Yeah. And so I was using that as audition material, and Anne said, oh, you're a monologist. Oh. And then um, I started working toward being a monologist. I had the really good fortune of seeing Spalding Gray perform, and I'd seen Sandra Bernhardt perform. Mm. And, like, Sandra Bernhardt would open up the Esprit catalog and, like, literally read from the Esprit catalog, and it was riveting theater and social commentary. Mm -hmm. And I felt, you know, and I was like, 20 I was like 20 at that point I felt more and more called as a performer to speak my own words mm -hmm. than to kind of blend into a character yeah um and then Anne got fired from Trinity Rep Ooh. very like disgustingly and publicly really and I, yeah, don't, I don't know, know about this. this I don't know this oh. no. so the theater I, I know us, about her with yes. like City and Columbia oh, right so Trinity Rep Theater in Providence Rhode Island had this extraordinary artistic director Adrian Hall who I never met who is everyone loved him and he was there forever and ever and always and made the company what it was and then, you know and then he retired and I think think maybe he went to Dallas maybe he was at Dallas I don't know he, he went down to somewhere and they did a search to bring in a new person mm -hmm. and they chose Anne but then Anne got to Providence and like the first thing she did was stage this like gorky summer folk play that I was in with her like interesting postmodern framing mm -hmm. devices. Uh -huh. And then her then girlfriend Tina Landau deconstructed oh, yeah. the Christmas Carol. Yes, I And heard she about set this. the Christmas Carol so cool. yeah, go ahead. No, no, to no, Handel's I'm... Messiah. Yeah. And the Providence theater goers freaked out. They yeah. wanted their Christmas Carol. They wanted Driving Miss Daisy. Mm. And then she had the Santorini Fornas play. And then she had Robert Woodruff direct Ball. 
And like the Providence people were like, they were done. They ball just is too much in. for them. Yeah, 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 too much. No Brecht, <laughs> no ball. No, 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 no. And they hosted amazing. Her. Damn. And there was some kind Which of... Which is kind of fabulous, too. I mean, like horrible, but also like she's yeah. just so... She's too much for them. Yeah. Like she's too... It was, yeah, it was a lot of things. I mean, after that, what was sort of great was that then Anne really got involved with city, you know, founded City Company because she right. at that point had started working with Suzuki in Japan. Mm-hmm. So then she founded City Company and then she landed at Columbia and Trinity brought in Richard Jenkins, the actor, to be their acting or artistic director. Is he from Harry Potter? Um, he's from like everything. Yeah, he's, he's been in amazing. a ton of stuff. Oh, The Visitor. Um, you know, did, you know him. Yeah, flirting with disaster. Did you see flirting with disaster? Mm-hmm. He's he's an amazing actor. This is a really. So they kind of solidified their. She's Kevin the Woods. Oh, see that's what I know. Yeah, I know. I know you. Wow, from DeKalb, and then they brought in Oscar Eustace. So I mean, it, it wound mm. up everyone sort of got what they needed in yeah, the long yeah. run. But it was a really tumultuous month. Oof. And so in my program, most of the people who were there were there specifically for Anne. So we all kind of. Packed up and moved back to New York. Yeah. And um, I kind of had like a little, there have been like two or three periods in my life when I've had like serious come to Jesus moments. And that was one of them. And I decided not to go back to school. I sort of run out of money. Mm -hmm. And like, I was just ready to throw myself in. So I got an apartment in the East Village. I started waitressing and trying to get representation to work as an actor. But the thing I knew how to do was make my own work. I mean, that was what Anne was all about. That was what my training was. And now I was writer. So Mm -hmm. I started making my own work. And I was this, like, performance artist girl. And I was doing my little solo monologues everywhere all around town. Um, And then I had written this three-page play, four-page play, for my friend Megan and I to perform in the house I was living in, in Providence. And we never did it. And I sent it to Naked Angels because they were uh-huh. just looking for material for, like, their issues project. They had the Women's Issues Project okay. in oh. 1993. <laughs> and they um, they did it. They called me up. They were like, hi, this is, you know, Naked Angels. We're going to do your play. Um, and I didn't really know what playwrights did. I mean, I you know, I'd been in plays. Right. But, like, I didn't really know what the job description was, so I sort of showed up, and Ioni Skye and Missy Yeager were in it, mm-hmm. and they produced me in an evening with John Robin Bates and Wendy Wasserstein and Craig Lucas, wow. and suddenly I was a playwright. Um, so then that was interesting, and I, for a year or two, tried to do both playwriting and acting, mm-hmm. but I had this deficit of not really understanding, you know, because I'd come from experimental theater and I'd come from viewpoints and I'd come from this kind of performance art, like... Which also feels more of a devised world than yes, the right. playwright present. Yes, absolutely. And it was things like we we, we embraced randomness, so it was like, yeah. okay, let's like only use language from Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, sure. and there'll be a moment of like... Uh, like three minutes of silence, and then we'll do some like dance moves, uh-huh. and then I'll read off of um, the Esprit catalog because I liked when Sandra Bernhardt did that, and we'll call that a play. <laughs> so, so I had to figure out what a play was, and I started going to Naked Angels Tuesdays at nine, and I wrote a one act, and then decided to produce it myself. And so I spent a year sort of producing this one act I'd written. I did it at not there was a theater on Ludlow Street called Nada. And there was, I did it at Dixon Place. Yeah. And then um, 
a bunch of... At the bar area or downstairs? Well, this was when it was in her home. Oh, wow. <laughs> so cool. The original conceit of Dixon Place is it was Ellie Coman's house. Oh. So first it I was... I no idea. Yeah. No. Oh, yeah. So I've been very, there multiple times. Me too, times. but I didn't So when that. I performed there as a solo artist, it was in her house on First Street in the East Village, and then she got a loft on the Bowery, and then it was in her loft, and so then cool. now they're in this other space. Yeah. Yeah. But it wasn't like a proper theater. Like Ellie would come out and say, "Hi, and I'm Ellie Welcome. Coleman. This is my house." <laughs> and she was kind of wonderful and goofy and eclectic and smart. And then the people would perform, and then there would be like drinks, like a yeah. salon. Yes, it was exactly like a salon. It reminds me of um that place in Brooklyn that you did hooker at. Yeah, I miss that place. It what doesn't exist it? anymore. Oh, it really? was called um, the Dead Herring. I think I don't know. It was that. like a salon. It was yeah. in Williamsburg, and uh-huh. it was this big, just like loft space. And some of the artists lived there, so yeah. they like built rooms. Yeah. But most of it was just this big open space, and they set up tiered seating, but they were couches. Mm-hmm. So it was on a rise, like you would see in the theater, but like yeah. couches and armchairs, and everyone just lounging around, yeah. and people passing joints around. And they're looking down into the kitchen. Yeah. And in the kitchen is where you do the art. Yeah. And so I did a play called Hooker Raft there. We were all hookers on a raft. Um, (laughs) It was really cool. It was a good play. Um, Who wrote it? uh, Ben Lewis. Okay. Um, So it was four women and we're we're hookers on this raft Uh in this kitchen in Williamsburg. (laughs) And everyone's smoking pot and drinking and having an amazing time and just making art. There's like weird puppets and things everywhere and like art on the walls. And they did this other show that was like turned the kitchen island into a boat and they're like mm-hmm. on a boat and they're sailing. It was really magical. You need more yeah. art like that. I yeah. think I do mean more. It's really art like exciting. That. Because I feel like so much I'm sorry to take away yeah, from please. your narrative, but I feel like the what Broadway is right now yeah. is not conducive to creating new work and producing new work. Some. Yeah, some of it, well, some of it well, is. I've but. always really liked theater in which I feel that I, as the audience, am invited in. Mm-hmm. And, like, not in a cheesy, like, 60s theater confrontational on, way, yeah. but in a way that's, like, we know you're here and we're happy. Like, this we wouldn't happen here. without yeah. this audience. Yeah. And that apartment theater model really makes you feel like you're being invited into something special. Mm-hmm. You'd love this, too. There's this playwright, Mariah McCarthy, who we both oh, yeah. know, and we really like you her. Know She's going to be a guest at some point. We oh, haven't yeah. scheduled it yet. But uh, she has this beautiful play that I went to see called Mrs. Mayfield's we were there together. Class of... Class reunion of okay. 1990-something. Yeah, it's like a fourth grade class reunion or something. Yeah. So it's in an apartment. I love that. It's so we, we like got to put uh, stickers based on what level of interactiveness we wanted, interaction. Oh, so like if you really just wanted to observe, you could have yeah. a certain, but if you wanted to be part of it, and it was immersive, and it was a whole scripted play, oh, but also that. an element of improvisation yeah. and just being there with the audience, and you the follow plays. people into rooms, and oh, be I a love part of that. Like, but then there's also like group scenes yeah. where yeah. there's a big confrontation and everyone's standing around. I feel like you would really dig it. I probably would. I'm going to introduce you to. Oh, yeah. We know each other. Okay. I'd be surprised if you didn't. Yeah. No, we do. I mean, not well, but we do know each other. She's lovely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just wrote something that's in my fantasy life meant to happen at the Pyramid Club on Avenue A. Okay. It's also meant to be sort of immersive, but not improvisational, but it's really new, so I don't know how it works yet. Okay. It sounds exciting. It sounds amazing. (laughs) Let's do it.
<laughs> so yeah, then then these um, five women and I got together and produced an evening of one acts in Tribeca. It was me, um, the late Adrienne Shelley with her first play, uh, this really great performance artist Leslie Buxbaum, who was a part of ERS. I think she teaches oh. at Northwestern now. Okay. Um, ERS and Heather McCutcheon and Nina Bieber, who's phenomenal. Um, and so we did this night of one X called Girls, 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 all one X all the time. And then when that was over, I was like, I think 25 at that point, and just super burned out on New York theater. And I didn't want to do it anymore. And I wanted to like, I wanted to have all the adventures of my youth that I hadn't had because I moved to New York to go to Barnard and then become an actor. Right. And my, my best friend from growing, from Chicago where I went to high school had gone to Hampshire. And, you know, at Hampshire they were, like, swinging from the trees naked. And like, <laughs> you know, like reading Alice Walker aloud in the orchards. And so, you know, I wanted that. So I, um, I had a year or two of just, like, non-theater-related adventures, which also included falling in love and driving cross-country with my ex-boyfriend in his minivan and living in San Francisco and sort of having all sorts of things. And yeah, and then eventually I came back to New York with my tail between my legs and thought, holy fuck, now what? And decided to go back to school. And while I was applying to go get my bachelor's degree, I also applied to Juilliard. And I got into Juilliard. And it was like, you know, I had I'd written two plays at that point. And Chris Narain called and said, come to Juilliard. Hey, Chris, what's up? <laughs> That's so cool. I guess I'll come. <laughs> yeah, and it was like another moment of sort of, you know, I've never been a particularly strategic person. So, like, you know, when I sit down and make one of those, like, maps for my life, like, that's not what happens. Something mm-hmm. else happens that's usually much better more and much more interesting. Yeah. Exactly. So I had really gotten to the point, you know, the year before that where I was like, I don't know. Like, I didn't have an agent as an actor. I was really tired. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be like on stage anymore. I wanted to create a life of meaning, but I didn't know what that meant. I was willing to leave New York, but I drove driven across the country sort of looking for any other city I could yeah. live in and hadn't really Portland, Oregon came close. Mm-hmm. But there was like no job I could do in Portland, Oregon where I'd have earned more than eight dollars an hour. Mm. So <laughs> like I would have gone to yeah. massage therapy school uh-huh. and been somebody that they make fun of on Portlandia. <laughs> so Chris Durang, Juilliard, sounded really good. Sure, yeah. And I, um, you know, I buckled down, and um, I remember one of my teachers had said a long, long time ago, get trained in something. It doesn't matter what it is, but really get trained. And so I I did that. And Marsha Norman and Chris Durang were these, like, extraordinary teachers. And then I went and hunted down Irene Fornes because of the lightning bolts flying through the sky. And I went to Mexico, and I studied with her, and and I apprenticed her a little bit. And then then I was a playwright. Amazing. This is cool, too, because you sent that beautiful essay that you wrote, which kind of started at the very end of this. Or not at the very end, but, like, now I got all the background before Juilliard. Yeah. 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 Is that published? Is that a published article? You know, A is for the nonprofit that Martha Clinton and Kelly Overby have to promote choice and abortion awareness. They published it on their blog. Awesome. Yeah. We'll definitely post a link to it. Yeah. Yeah. And also your website. Sure. 
I'm revamping my website right now, awesome. but yes, when it's ready, you can, yes, you can do that. Will. Yeah, so I was pregnant the day I started Juilliard. Oh, wow. And um, yeah. And, and that was the day that you found out. That was the day I found out. My ex and I, you know, were not, we were really immature about a lot of things. And I think that we probably sort of knew that we weren't going in the same direction, but we desperately wanted to hold on to each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, it was like a first love kind of experience. Like, um, I mean, yeah, I was just, you know, the way that I was in love with him was like the way little puppy dogs, like, mm-hmm. are in love with each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you know, so we just... It's the magic of the first love. It's very, very... It's very real. potent. Yeah. It is yeah. very real very and very deep. potent. So, um, yeah. So there I was on the first day of Juilliard. Oh, my period was late. And I was used to sort of playing with fire because we weren't, like I said, incredibly responsible. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd, you know, had the pregnancy scares before. And I certainly, um, I'd grown up with a sick mom. My mom was sick for a long time. So it was really, and I, and I went to women's college to Barnard. So I was really interested in the political implications of women's health. And I, you know, and certainly in the 90s with all of the choice activities that were happening here, there was WAC and there was WHAM and the, the Women's Action Corps, is that what they were called? Do you I actually, Wack no, I don't really, I, this is well before I got to New York. Yeah, so the 90s were like, it was like an incredible time for pro-choice feminists because there was the, there was the Women's Health Action, could you look this up? It was whack and it was wham, and one of them had, <laughs> had drums. drums. Oh, they both, I mean, both of those They were are both, words. like, and vaguely associated with the riot girl movement, but really politicized, and we were out marching for choice, I mean, all the time. And um, it was so sort cool. of the tail end of the, and it was a really, it was a great time to be a women's health activist. So I had all this information, you know, and then there I was, like, stupid and in the position of needing help. And I had, like, I, I played it out in my mind. Like, what if I just, like, have this baby? Like, can I just, like, have a baby? Because, you know, I loved my boyfriend. And so I got, I'm sorry, I got yeah, the name. You got so it. there's the Women's Action Coalition. Uh-huh. That was whack. And then, um, and then the, the Women's Health Action Coalition. Mm-hmm. But which was Wham. It was Wham and Whack. Was it Wham, Wham? Yeah. Wham was. Who had the drums? Because <laughs> the drums were divine. Let's see. Oh, Women's Action Coalition. Yeah. Yeah, its members held colorful demonstrations in support of women's rights using a drum corps and the yes. slogan, Whack is Watching, We Will Take Action. Yes, yes. We need to yes, bring this yes, back. Yes. It was pretty that is great. So cool. People were active, people were loud, people were excited, people were, you know, vocal. It was a time, I mean, there was, I, I, I remember as a young woman feeling really empowered and like there, and there wasn't this cloud of shame about abortion rights or about choice or just even about like you it know feels so power stigmatized yeah. it feels really stigmatized how do you think we like since you've lived through it yeah how do you think we got to where we are now? backlash susan faludi's book backlash i mean i think there was an incredible backlash against feminism mm-hmm. and you know i think there was an entire wave of young women probably younger than me and older than you maybe who got who sort of felt like okay well we're beyond that right you know we're beyond that yeah Yeah. I don't want to be a woman I want to be a person like Mm -hmm. I don't um we don't need that and we think I think we got a little complacent Mm -hmm. and um you know what I remember being so freaked out by in my 
30s was it felt like that vibrant wave of pro-choice and, and sex-positive feminism got replaced with the rules. Mm. Suddenly there was all of this, like, don't call him back. Make him come to you. Like, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it felt regressive to me. Totally. It felt like all the stuff that our mothers had gone, that my mother's generation went through in the 50s. Um, and I think we also got fooled into thinking that a strong woman was like Angelina Jolie holding a gun mm-hmm. rather than, like, a self that's why I hate that term to describe a character. I know, I do A too. strong female Ugh, character? What the right. fuck does just that mean? a female character. Like, are oh, they yeah, good yeah. at bodybuilding? Yeah. <laughs> it <physically>. means, <laughs> it literally means Angelina Jolie holding a gun. Yeah. yeah. Or saving the world from terrorism. Or, um, I, I hate this one. You ready? I hate this one. She fucks like a guy. Yeah. Like, what does that what mean? What does that mean? I, that's, <laughs> have you read Gone Girl? She has a penis. Yes, I read Gone people. Girl. So the per, the part I really like about Gone Girl yes. is the cool girl. The uh-huh. taking down of the cool girl oh, stereotype. Yeah. Because yes. that, that's the thing that drives me crazy. Is like, oh yeah, she, you know, hangs out with the guys, can pretend to be, like, she cares about all the things you do. Sports, blah, blah, blah. She loves to have sex. She's a cool girl. She eats a lot of pizza, drinks detached. a lot of beer. Right. Still a size she's, two. Yeah. She's emotionally detached yeah. and there's nothing messy or wet about her. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Yeah. I mean, we have so far to come because misogyny is just so deeply buried in everything. Right. And ignoring it, you know? it doesn't make it go away. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how do you think we got here? Yeah, no, I think, I don't know that I've, I didn't, I didn't live in the 90s and feel yeah. that I was in a small town being young and I was, I was excited by the Spice Girls, but Spice, <laughs> Girls, Spice Girls are still super sexualized though, the you Spice know? Spice Girls aren't it, yeah. No, they're I not was, real. Yeah, when the Spice Girls, so the Spice Girls, okay, I'm a little obsessed with the Spice Girls. I love that. <laughs> because I was babysitting, I was at Juilliard and babysitting when that all was happening. Okay. Uh-huh. And the Spice Girls at first felt regressive to me and felt like we took the riot girls and then made them into infantilized sex creatures, right? Like, what the fuck with Baby Spice? Come on. It's so creepy. And and they were so, like, and and the message was like, yeah, I don't know. But then what won me over about them was that the little girls I babysat for were obsessed. Mm -hmm. And so I would watch this, like, five-year-old girl and her posse watch the Spice Girls. And to, like, five-year-old Hannah, the Spice Girls were empowered women. Because the Spice Girls were little girls who were, like, ruling the world. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. And that's, I mean, I think that's how I can trace my feminism because... My, it's so my, interesting. My parents, my my dad is pretty progressive, but my yeah. mother is not. Uh-huh. And so the fact that I am who I am, it surprises me. I watched a lot of TV, which mm-hmm. I think helps, and I read a lot. Mm-hmm. But, like, Spice Girls are one of my earliest memories of, I'm like, these women can make music together and girl power and, like, we're Friendship. empowered. Well, they were all about female friendship, yeah. which is what Sex in the City was also supposedly about. And that was happening at the same time, this idea that there was a girl posse. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say, because I write about female friendship a lot, and I've had male artistic directors say, well, I don't know what this play is. I don't know what it's about. I don't know what the conflict is. I don't know what's dangerous. I had one guy say to my then agent, if someone had a gun, I would know what it was about. Do you see the Robin Feedy panel? At- no. I she talked about... It's, yeah. it, that's fine. Yes. She just talked about... Being excited to not have to explain the jokes. Yes. Yes. And that's... Yes. And to not have to explain... I had a Like play. to say something about natural hair and just, like, continue. 
Sure. And like, if you get it, great. Like, and okay. if you don't, figure it out. Like no yeah. translator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the idea that there are these subtle emotional events between women that are actually really devastating and important, mm -hmm. and that in some way also shape our politics. You know, Carol Gilligan has this groundbreaking book. I don't remember which one because she has like a hundred groundbreaking books where she talks about... Um, I don't remember if it's the Ophelia book or if it's the In Her Voice book, but she talks about the way how girls, teenage girls, shape their politics through personal relationship. Ooh. And so when you're listening to women talk about relationship, we're actually talking about our politics. The two are so intertwined. It goes back to Audre Lorde and the power of the erotic, right? Like this, this well of deep feeling and the way how we want our world to operate are like kind of yeah. hand in hand. That makes so much sense yeah. and I hadn't ever thought of it that way. <laughs> That's amazing. I feel like I'm still processing it. I think I need to read this book. Yeah. Yeah, well there are a bunch of books. She's a psychologist that works a lot with female experience and female voice. She's actually written a play. She took my playwriting class. Really? She's one of my personal heroes and she like took my playwriting class. What? That's yeah, amazing. she wrote a Scarlet Letter adaptation. <gasps> Oh, that sounds great. Right? <laughs> yeah. She's I don't have a pen. Did you write her name? I wrote her name Carol down. Carol Gilligan. Yeah. She's extraordinary. Yeah, so I think we're still kind of excavating all of that. Yeah. I mean, I'm so excited by your project about, because I'm also really interested in economic feminism, right? Because then Beyonce came along right. and said, oh, if I want that, I buy it. Right. I buy it. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's huge yeah. to have some kind of economic presence totally. and to say that as women we can get what we need. And it's okay to say that you want things that are expensive, too. I think. And that you and plan to you. buy them. You're going to you. earn that money. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You don't expect some man to buy it for you. Correct. You are empowered to buy it yourself because yes. you want it. Yes, that's correct. So, yeah, no, I think that the Susan Faludi Backlash book is really good and talks a lot about the way how the 90s came and bit women in the ass. The complacency is interesting because... I learned recently that Roe versus Wade was almost overturned the following year after it was passed because oh, I, didn't know that. I didn't either. I, I was lobbying um, in Albany with mm -hmm. the National Institute for Reproductive Health, mm -hmm. and we had a training, and they talked about this in the training. It was almost overturned the next year, so 1974, because all the people who had been fighting for it and who were pro-choice and activists were like, we did it. Good job, us, and kind of sat back, and this huge anti-choice movement swelled up and it was really the signature of one man who let that not happen. But it was close. Wow. The anti-choice movement is really well organized mm -hmm. and yeah. really intense. And they have been lobbying for this for so long. I mean, they're in bed with the devil right now yeah. because they just want to get that overturned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? It's so gross. It is so gross. Did you guys watch Orphan Black? I only watched a little the bit. first season. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that. Tatiana yeah. Maslany is incredible. Is. But there's, I think it's either in season one or season two, they go, there's this like, oh, I'm going to get it wrong. It's like a Bible-based, it's some kind of off-the-grid fundamentalist cult mm -hmm. that they go to the, the, where the where um, one of the clones is then inseminated and kind of forced to, like... Oh, yes. I remember ew, that. Ew, ew. Yeah. But it, it makes me think, and it's not unlike the Margaret Atwood the dystopia, right? Yeah. It makes me think, you know, when we're talking about choice, we're, we're not actually 
talking about abortion. We're just talking about power. Yeah. We're talking about autonomy. autonomy. And yeah. if you think about it, there's no experience that men have in which they have to get permission to do Correct. something with their bodies. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. The the idea of, like, I'm the master of my own ship is, at least for white men, unquestioned. Right. But women have so many... The, the idea that we are the master of our ship, that we own our body, is still radical. I really love how you phrase that's that. That's such a... Yeah, that's such a great way to... Well, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, and so many women, we talked about this a little bit earlier, feel like they need to check with their partner before they do something to their physical appearance. Because they want to be still desirable. Correct. Well, because they want to be desirable and because it's so deeply ingrained. I mean, I'll tell you, I um, I get acupuncture. I love acupuncture. Acupuncture helped it's my wrist great. injury. Oh, acupuncture, really yeah. I had nursing tendonitis after I had my son. Acupuncture healed that. And I mean, I'm a big fan. And and generally, throughout my life, I've been in the like alternative health camp. Mm-hmm. And I once had cupping done, and my husband freaked the fuck out. It was fine. It was great. I don't know. It was fine. Yeah. But my husband saw these, like, cupping yeah. marks on my body, and he just went ballistic. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, and I, I think that this, um, you know, and, and in his, the way he talked about it, like, he just thinks it's nonsense, and he thought I was taken for a ride, and he was very angry I paid for this. Mm-hmm. But, like, I actually think it's a deeper Mm -hmm. I think there is some like deep wellspring of I don't know species memory where they feeling they own our bodies yeah yeah no I mean and now there are there's a mark on it and I didn't make it so what did you do yeah I think that that's reinforced in our society in a lot of ways like women are objects I mean that's what we're talking about in terms of autonomy sure objects are children yes Mm -hmm. you know we need to get Permission for of. this and permission for that, and Brooke, were you we need there? to have loans co-signed. And was I there once? During the festival, I think I think this was we were all standing together at this point. There was a man who came over, um, yes, and was like, "I would like to solicit." Oh yes, I do remember. Okay, that. So he was like, "I would like to solicit your feedback, ladies." Um, what was the word he used? Guardian. Did a he guardian say that? of feminism. He he like grew up in a family with lots of women, like lots oh, of sisters yeah, yeah, yeah. And, a, yeah. and his mother. And so he, he considered himself a guardian of feminism, and what did we think of that term, and how could he do that? And we all kind of paused, and I was like, well, don't, don't say you're a guardian. We don't, we don't need to be guarded. Correct. Right. That was brilliant that you said that. Because <laughs> it was so clear, and it was so concise, and it was really the exact right And I was like, adjustment. I think also you should listen. Like, ask them if they need protective yeah. and listen to their response. Yeah. Because, I mean, it, it did also strike me that he kind of, we were all, there were... Five of us, ladies, all us and Yael and John Terry mm-hmm. talking, and he kind of just barged in and just began his own conversation. Yeah. Which I've noticed men do yes. a lot. I'll be talking to people, and a man will come in and just insert himself and not pay attention to what was already happening. Or even was, ask who you are, what you're doing. There's a Just start talking at you. There's a lot of that. <laughs> There's a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you, you said you're working on a piece right now. What's For the pyramid. Yeah. Yeah, I'm working on a couple of things. So I'm making my first feature film as a director. Yay! Congratulations. Um, I was living in L.A. for five years. So I, so in the trajectory, I had started working as a screenwriter. I'd sold a play of mine to someone in Hollywood and, and then was kind of thrust into, like, 
Hollywood. But I, again, like the same way that when I started writing plays, I really sort of didn't know what playwrights yeah. did. I didn't really understand what screenwriters did or how the process was different. I didn't watch television. I was at the theater every night. I'd been trained by Ann Bogart. Mm-hmm. So I would take these meetings and they would say things like, you know, how, what we want to work. How do you like to work? Because, you know, we're really interested in your process. Yeah. And I would say, oh, that's great because I have this really organic process. Yeah. So I, I moved to LA to sort of absorb screenwriter culture, and while I was living there, do, writing scripts for hire, I realized that the kind of scripts I love were made by writer directors, and I'd had a couple of friends who were making their own work, and especially I was really inspired by both my friend Jessica Goldberg, who made this film Refuge, and Jill Soloway, who was starting to make her short films before she made Afternoon Delight. Before, before Transparent. She realized she was in the writer, she was in television and she yeah. realized she wanted to be a director. Uh-huh. And she like made some short films, she made some music videos, then she made she made a short that went to Sundance, and then she made this extraordinary film called Afternoon Delight with Katherine Hahn, excuse me, I'm and it. Josh Radner. Katherine Hahn so much. Yeah, she's I know she's the best. Yeah. Um, I wanted her in my movie. Oh. I won't say in what role. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. But I just, I'm a big fan. She's amazing. She's so good. So I, I raised nine thousand dollars on Indiegogo and made a short that went to the hey. festival circuit. And now I've been prepping this feature for like a couple of years. Oh, that's awesome. But like, I think we're getting close. We have like a new EP. I'm working on. It. We have a new lookbook. I just came back Ooh. from the stage and film. I'm gonna do a draft of the script. Yes. Another draft of it. The script is really close. Please so let been, us know if we can help. Yes. Anyway. If there's anything oh that we God, can do to yes. help. Publicity. So I've been, I've been working on that, and then um, I'm working on pilots because I want to write television now. Yeah. And then I have this play that I wrote. Um, that's it's just too bad you're not busy. You don't like, have, yeah, you don't have any projects that you're working on. <laughs> But I have this play that's like this crazy theatrical collage about a friendship over 25 years in New York, in the East Village in New York City. And it takes on sort of queer identity and politics and um, like the whole sort of complicated weave of gay men and straight women. And also that sort of sex positive adventurous 90s Mm. Avenue B culture. Um, so my fantasy is to stage it in the Pyramid Club with dance breaks and a DJ. I but I don't know idea. how that part works. Dance like breaks a, for the audience or like a dance I don't montage? Know. I don't know. I feel I like I think it all should be interactive. Should yeah, have a dance montage. Right? Like yes. I keep thinking of the way how Alex Kimber's stage Here Lies Love. The, oh, it was great. It was at the public, but it felt like you were in a club, and mm-hmm. the and the and the play happened. The audience was kind of shuffling around, and the play happened environmentally mm-hmm. around us. And it was like a real experience. Yeah, I, I like, like theater that. to be an experience. I do too. I do too. That's how I retain. You want to be a member of it. Yeah, that's why you're at live theater. That's right, and it comes from ritual. Mm-hmm. So let let it be a ritual. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So I have all the components in place, and i got to figure out who's going to direct it and how it's going to work. It's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. You're an inspiration. Oh, really. thank you. Is, yeah, thank amazing. you so much for joining Oh, my God, yeah. my pleasure. And I um, have to go pick my son up from Canada. Yes. Yeah. If people want to follow you, where can, yes. they, can they find um, you? They can find me on Facebook. They can find me on Instagram. And I have a website that's in the process of being rebuilt, mm-hmm. but it's brookberman.net. B-R-O-O-K-E-B-E-R-M-A-N dot net.
Wonderful. And yeah. I'll put all that on the Instagram. And you guys yes, are going to keep me posted about your film and about your project. We absolutely will. Because I'm a fan. I want to help. Thank you. Thank you. That's yeah. really, really That's cool. That's really exciting. <laughs> it's, it's so exciting great. to have you here. Thank you for being so game to come yeah. immediately. It's really wonderful. I'm glad. My pleasure. Thank you for Thank me. you. <laughs> oh, you Parting had... cat fact. Yeah. Oh, so we like so... to close out each episode with a cat fact. Is that okay? That. Or do you need yes. to go right now? Okay. Yes. What's the cat fact? So I wanted to know the where the term crazy cat lady came from. Ooh. So I did a little Googling, uh-huh. and essentially it sounds like we have the Catholic Church to thank for this, uh-huh. because if you go way back in mythology, there was Bast, who was yeah, part cat, Egypt. part human, and then there's also Freya, who was the Norse goddess of cats. Oh. And then the Catholic Church came along and was like, no, you can't worship any of these things. You can only worship these saints that we will allow you to worship. Uh-huh. So they linked cats with demonic possession and, and demons and Satan worship. And so that kind of led to like witchcraft trials and hunting uh, empowered women. And, and black cats and too, because cats. Bast is, bla- is a black Right, cat. exactly. Wow, but it's so, so interesting, right, because the crazy cat lady is this like desexualized, single, mm-hmm. older but woman. But similar to a witch, yes. right? So they tortured and killed hundreds and thousands of cats <gasps> because of Pope Innocent VIII. And so the genocide of all the cats created an overabundance of mice rodents oh. which led to the bubonic plague there you go oh my god so <laughs> cat's revenge yes exactly Lorely, wow. that is the best cat fact that you have shared that's on this the... show so far and this is our 19th episode uh, something like that that was a really good one thank you and there's more They're, they talked more about like the more current cat lady trope which i can talk about at another time but i was like wow that's fascinating way to ruin things catholic church yeah, that's amazing <laughs> thank you but yeah, and women and, and and cats have been persecuted throughout history, so Indeed. we're natural companions. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, Lorelei. You're welcome. Thank you, Thank Thank you, you so for coming. Much, you Thank guys. you for uh, been listening to the, the Pussy, Pussy Power, Power podcast. podcast. Make sure to feed your cat and please your pussy. That's Lorelei <laughs> Tyson. That's Kate Courtleo. Have a great week. Meow. Meow.